Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Brittany Street, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you here today. Yeah, I am also glad that we were able to do this. I'm really excited to talk about your forthcoming JPAM article. The article is entitled Criminal Justice Involvement, Self-Employment, and Barriers in Recent Public Policy. This study is co-authored with Keith Finley who's a research economist at the U.S. Census Bureau, and also with Michael Mueller-Smith, who's an assistant professor of economics at the University of Michigan. So this is a pretty descriptive and measurement-based paper, I think, that provides some pretty new and important facts about the labor market outcomes, specifically the self-employment labor market outcomes or self-employment rates of folks who've had contact with the criminal justice system in the United States. So my first sort of general question that I was, I was wondering about is what exactly does contact with the criminal justice system mean, both generally and in the context of your study? And what fraction of the working age population has had such contact? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question and, and one to kind of set on early on. Um, it's actually a a lot more complicated than I think you would expect. So many times we think of contact with the criminal justice system and what we often use in kind of public discourse is incarceration. You know, this is largely just because that's what's most easy to measure in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a lot of criminal justice contact actually happens well before anyone's actually incarcerated. So you're arrested, processed through the criminal justice system, through having charges filed, having convictions, you can have parole or probation, and then sometimes incarceration. So what we're going to talk about in terms of contact with the criminal justice system is going to be, you know, having any charges filed, convictions, incarceration, or parole or probation. So we'll do a much more comprehensive kind of measure of what we mean by criminal justice contact. And sometimes we'll kind of aggregate just for the sake of having kind of a a nice measure, which is just any conviction or incarceration. And sometimes we'll split it apart to say something like, you know, specifically this type of contact versus the other. Right. So you'll be able to construct a measure that's like any of the above. Exactly. And then when you split it up, I guess that'll be useful for looking at just differences across different types of contact. Exactly. Okay. In terms of the share of the U.S. that has any contact with the criminal justice system, that's also a complicated question. So, you know, you would think we would know this, kind of like we know the share of the population that's graduated high school or is currently employed. 
we don't actually know the share of people in the U.S. who have, say, a felony conviction or have been to prison. We have some estimates, but again, it's easiest to think about, well, what share have you know, are currently incarcerated or something like that. And so that's what's typically used in the U.S. And, you know, kind of some recent numbers are somewhere around close to 700 people per 100,000. So that's kind of the typical uh, incarceration rate in the U.S. And that's currently incarcerated. Exactly. So this is just at a point in time. So it's a lot harder to think about who has ever been incarcerated. And that's not those types of numbers. We don't actually... Is that just because they're not collected or? Yeah. So, you know, it's really tough to actually get this type of, again, it's a data issue. We know who's currently incarcerated at any point in time because they're currently in the custody of the state. Okay. And so we have numbers year to year on this. What we don't keep track of, though, is, say, personal histories, right? So how many currently incarcerated are first-time offenders, first repeat offenders? How many are? So we wouldn't want to add up the currently incarcerated numbers like each year, because then you would be double counting maybe some people. Exactly. Okay. And is that rate higher than in other high income countries? I was under the impression that it was, but. Yeah, it's much higher. So, you know, kind of two comparisons, for example, you know, the UK, which I think a lot of people make comparisons to the US is only 147 per 100,000. So we're talking much lower. Uh, Similarly for Canada, which is just to the north of us, it's only 118 per 100,000. So we're talking like six or seven times more frequent. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So the the conventional wisdom is is true and and that's even a a starker disparity than uh, some of us may have thought. Yeah. The one other thing that's really interesting is, you know, that's comparing to other high income countries. But even if we compare to all countries, the yeah. U.S. is still an outlier. So, you know, the next closest is Cuba at 510. So, you know, we're still well above even the second highest, oh, wow. the second highest country. Yeah. Interesting. And having uh, uh, some sort of conviction on your record, I think we also sort of, uh, I guess, generally know uh, and expect that some sort of uh, recorded conviction might show up in a job interview or be disclosed on a job application. And that leads to lower levels of formal employment or legal employment in the formal labor market. Do we have a sense of how large that penalty is? Yeah, so it's it's quite large. If we think about you know those with a, a felony conviction, it's about 48% lower than those without the felony conviction. Uh, so this is really pretty dramatic. Similarly for incarceration. So of course, you're not going to be employed when you're incarcerated. But even whenever you've kind of been released, some of our best numbers are that, you know, a 10% reduction in employment for every year uh, that you've been in prison. Okay. So there's there's also like a cumulative effect on the, the likelihood of being formally employed. Exactly. And I think, you know, kind of conventional wisdom thinks that there's some sort of stopping point where, you know, maybe your 10th incarceration doesn't matter in terms of employment, but definitely those kind of first few involvements with the criminal justice system, you know, going from no record to having one felony conviction is obviously a very important jump. Right. It's a very discrete change in, in what the application looks like and, and presumably how it's viewed by employers. So speaking of how it's viewed by employers, what are the likely sources of this penalty? I mean, I, there's probably just a general 
aversion on the hiring side, being worried about the applicant's character, maybe, or reliability or something like that. But are there other sort of reasons or channels through which this penalty operates? Yeah, so it's possible. I think you're right. The The biggest is probably the general aversion among employers. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack, I think, there. So, yeah. you know, there's some work that, that talks about what is it that employers are even paying attention to? Is it all records? Is it maybe certain types of records? So you, we can think, you know, violent records compared to, say, drug records. So that one margin employers might be caring about. And some of why they might care about this range anywhere, like you were saying, from liability concerns. So am I more likely to be sued if be found at fault if I'm sued for having someone with a record under my employment? Or like you said, is this worker even reliable? So is this, you know, the fact that they have a record, some indication that they might not show up to work, they might be, um, you know, a poor quality employee. So, so that's kind of the dimension of general aversion. There's also this idea that, you know, perhaps engaging in the criminal justice system hurts the human capital development of, of the individual. So you can imagine that if you're incarcerated for many years, that when you're out, you might be less comfortable in a work type setting. Maybe your social skills have deteriorated and so forth. And so that's another possibility you know, why, why employers might not be hiring uh, people with criminal records. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that side of it much, but yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. It especially makes sense with incarceration. I think it makes a little less sense when thinking about the felony record, right? So having kind of that mark of the criminal record, uh, we don't necessarily think that just because you have now a felony record that your social skills have changed, right? So it's much easier to think of that channel through incarceration and less so with some of these other forms of criminal justice contact. But then there, I think your paper also mentions the idea that like there's certain jobs that for legal reasons just are not available to people with a criminal record. And that's another sort of issue that might not be immediately obvious. But but what are some of the jobs that that do have restrictions? Yeah, so that that's a great point. So for example, someone who's working as, say, in a cafeteria or as a janitor, many times if you have a felony record, you're not allowed to work in, say, a school or hospital. However, again, you're you're maybe working, you know, as a janitor at night whenever the place is empty or something. But again, these types of kind of occupational restrictions, you know, just kind of legally bind the places of employment. And a lot of these restrictions they vary by state, of course. So there's lots of different variations, but oftentimes it's kind of a, do you ever have a felony conviction? And it's a lifetime ban. Um, so even if you're, say, 50, 60 years old and had your record when you were 20, you still are kind of excluded from those places of employment. And this is all, you know, regardless of the reason for this employment penalty, uh, I think it's it's troubling from a social and policy perspective for a couple reasons. The most fundamental reason, I guess, is that having a a tough time finding a job period, but certainly finding a a stable job that pays a decent wage, if you don't have that stability, then you're more likely, we're more likely to see higher rates of recidivism or or being rearrested or or re-enting some sort of uh, criminal activity or re-engaging with the criminal justice system. What do we know about that relationship and, and sort of like the timing of how that would play out? So I actually think we know quite a bit about this and it's a really important 
margin to think about because obviously recidivism is is quite costly. So what I mean by recidivism is someone who leaves prison and then shows up back in prison a short time later. And in the U.S., these rates are really high. So, you know, north of 50% within three years. Uh, so this is extremely costly, both because the actual criminal acts themselves have some cost, but then also just the physical incarceration costs of having someone in prison. So there are several things that have been studied, and I'll kind of describe a few of them because I think the the differences between them are kind of nice, and they all point towards the same conclusion. Uh, so there's a paper that studies the effects of minimum wage. And so basically, if people leaving prison enter the market where there's a higher minimum wage relative to people who entered maybe you know in a different market or a few years earlier, whenever they entered, the minimum wage was quite lower. And keep in mind that a lot of the people that are involved in uh, the criminal justice system do tend to be lower wage workers. And so this is kind of a, a binding margin for them or, or a relevant margin. And so, you know, the workers that enter whenever minimum wages are higher, relatively higher, are much less likely to uh, recidivate. Uh, Similarly, same thing with the EITC. So this is the earned income tax credit. Uh, And so if this is higher whenever, say, particularly female releasees uh, enter the market, then they're also less likely to recidivate. So, you know, some version of access to financial resources, either through employment or through these tax benefits, uh, also generated through employment, reduce recidivism. Some kind of other types of settings is uh, Crystal Yang has a paper looking at drug offenders and their eligibility for welfare and food stamps, and also finds that if they're eligible, they're less likely to recidivate compared to those that aren't eligible. Um, And so again, this kind of access to additional financial resources really change the likelihood that you end up back in prison. And then kind of a final different margin to look at is just whether or not the industries that oftentimes people are hired into with records are booming at the time of your release. So uh, Kevin Schneppel has this nice paper where if the construction and manufacturing industries, which often hire people with criminal records and histories, happens to be booming when you're released, then you're also less likely to recidivate. So all these things, you know, this is over a range of different margins in terms of why financial resources are better, they all point to lower recidivism. So there's kind of this really tight relationship between more opportunities, either through jobs or financial resources when exiting prison, leads to you being less likely to return. Yeah. And I think that is an intuitive and an important point to make, which is that, you know, regardless of the source of the economic stability, economic stability uh, just fundamentally uh, really matters. And the lack of it not only harms, uh, you know, individual lives, but it, it imposes these costs on society, like you mentioned, of reentering, uh, you know, a, a legal process and then possibly uh, the incarceration costs. So despite this knowledge and despite seeing what we see in terms of the relatively high recidivism rates, it also seems like a lot of money is being spent every year on reentry and job training programs for folks that are trying to reenter the workforce. Are those programs, you know, generally effective or, you know, it, it almost makes me wonder, is that money better spent on some of these other social support programs or how do we think about that? And, and what do we know about the, the reentry programs in general? Yeah. So I think this is a great point because obviously, you know, any dollar spent in one kind of policy 
program is is a dollar that you can't spend elsewhere. Um, and so, so like you said, a lot of money is spent on this reentry, and actually, you know, we we find that those aren't that effective. Um, so, whether you know these wraparound services include help with housing and transportation and job finding and say interview prep and lots of things we think are important, they just don't translate to lower recidivism. There's actually a really nice kind of review of this evidence in JPAM a few years ago by Jen Doliak that kind of systematically reviews a lot of the research around these reentry programs. Uh, and again, kind of like with the other research, it all kind of, you know, lots of different programs and types of, of services but they all pretty much point to the same direction of not being that impactful. Interesting. And so there, I, I mean, I can imagine that there's kind of a, a political debate or a philosophical debate about you know, how some of the social support programs are, are framed as a handout, whereas the reentry programs are, are framed as, you know, retooling or, you know, investing in, in the human capital. I'd imagine that that's part of why the, the reentry programs remain fairly popular despite the, the relative lack of evidence on their effectiveness? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I find it fascinating to think about what would maybe be the ideal program and then what is maybe the politically feasible program. And I think kind of the, you know, how they're received by the public and how people think about these dollars being spent plays a really big factor. And also how people think about, you know, is someone deserving if they now have a record? And so that's kind of given rise to a lot of these policies that that keep them out of certain programs. Yeah, I think it's important to note, I'm sure that there are explicit exclusion criteria for some of these social assistance programs, right, directly tied to having a felony record or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right, particularly for, say, welfare or food stamps. One last thought about, about this is even though the money, you know, it's money spent on one can't be spent on the other, in some sense, these two types of programs probably are complementary. And, you know, maybe the job training programs are more effective if they're paired with some sort of support and assistance, you know, immediately following release to help someone reintegrate and, and find a job in the first place. Yeah, I think that's completely possible. I think a lot of these programs are are likely complementary and if you kind of solve some needs first, then maybe maybe these other could be more effective. I, you know, in the current style, typically it's the other way around of if you first go through these programs and show you're worthy, then we'll give you the other the other programs. And so perhaps a reordering <laughs> would would solve some of this issue. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So coming back to the to, to one of the main focuses of your paper then is that if people, that have a criminal record, have a hard time finding jobs in the formal labor market, meaning that uh, you know they have trouble getting hired as an employee at another firm. One alternative we talked about, one option we talked about is recidivism or, or turning back to, to crime of some sort. But the other option is self-employment. And this, again, is, is hard to measure. Uh, it seems like, and, and a real contribution of your study is figuring out how to measure that. So I think for this part, again, we need some definitions. What exactly do we mean by self-employment? Um, and are there different types of self-employment? So there's lots of different types. And so self-employment is just when someone works for themselves. 
and is not employed through another individual or organization. So that is somewhat, you know, I think easy to wrap our, our heads around. Um, but there are lots of different forms, like you mentioned, and a lot of these relate to tax purposes and liability considerations. So there are uh, sole proprietors or independent contractors. This form of employment, self-employment, tends to be the lowest, you know, have the lowest barriers to starting. Uh, so if you're an independent contractor or sole proprietor, you typically are just someone who accepts money in exchange for services. Um and, you know, it's like a like a, a landscape contractor or a, yep. a, a repairman or something. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it's as simple as that to being a sole proprietor or independent contractor. If we want to stick with this landscape example, then you could also imagine landscape companies that are limited liability companies. And so this just makes the business somewhat separate from the owner of the business in the sense that, say, someone breaks their ankle or, you know, trips over the the hedge that you're currently building, it just creates some separation between whether or not uh, the company is liable, the LLC, or the the individual business owner. Um, And so this kind of just creates some form of separation, but requires a little bit more setup in order to run. And then you go all the way to say something like an S corporation, which provides even more protection uh, apart from the business owner. So any gains or losses, those are on the business. And don't actually transfer through the individual owner. And so these are just kind of different options people have whenever starting out their own company. And typically it depends on how much liability they are wanting to take on themselves. In the general population, do you know roughly, you know, how many, how are these different types of self-employment organizations distributed across the the self-employed population? Yeah, so sole proprietors and independent contractors are the most common. Uh, and I think it makes sense because those are kind of the lowest barrier to entry. Yeah, it's, it's easy to do. Exactly. And not only are they kind of the most common, but it's also probably the most relevant group for those that are engaging in the criminal justice system. So this is kind of the most relevant set of self-employed people. And prior to your study, we actually didn't know much about the self-employment rates of the population with criminal convictions. Why is that? And why is it such a a measurement problem? Yeah, so I think this is the major contribution of of our new work is, so really, it comes down to being a data issue. And so typically, we measure employment with either surveys or state UI records. So that's kind of unemployment insurance system that states run. So the issue with surveys is, you know, they often ask very detailed questions about employment, which is wonderful. They'll ask things about, are you self-employed? Are you employed through an employer? How many hours do you work part-time, full-time? Lots of really detailed information about the employment side. Uh, But most surveys at scale or, you know, nationally representative surveys don't then also ask questions about criminal histories. And so you, you kind of have one, but not the other. And so that's kind of difficult to overcome. You know, even if... Is that omission because they're worried about response rates or just that there's other things they're more interested in? No, that's a really great point. I think probably both, depending on the survey. And so, you know, surveys do have problems with response rates, particularly among, say, uh, minority populations, those that are more kind of housing and stable, and those with lower education, all of which are very correlated or, you know, highly associated with also having a criminal record. So the low response rates is definitely an issue. But then also, you know, surveys can only be so long. So I think it's definitely 
an interesting question, but if you add the question, you're also relying on self-reported criminal histories. And you could imagine some people not wanting to kind of disclose that, yeah, they have a felony conviction. Right. And that's in the, in the survey literature, that's known as social desirability bias. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So, you know, some, some surveyors just might be more interested in other things. Um, you might also doubt the accuracy of the information because of this social desirability bias or uh, an incentive not to disclose certain characteristics about yourself. Okay. So the, so the survey data is no help and you're using administrative data, right, to make these connections. And, and that's your big uh, contribution, I think. Exactly. So previously, what we've done with the administrative data is look at criminal records and state unemployment. Uh, so that's where, you know, when I mentioned earlier, kind of the what is the penalty of having a record on employment and earnings? It's largely coming from these state UI systems. The problem with that is state UI systems, only this is basically if you're employed through an employer, they contribute some amount for your unemployment insurance. And so states keep track of this information. However, if you're self-employed, then you don't contribute in the same way and you're not eligible for unemployment insurance. And so actually, this kind of really rich administrative data system that we typically use is great for a lot of questions, but not when thinking about self-employment. So it's going to completely miss anyone who's uh, self-employed. And so the trouble is if you don't show up in these kind of state UI systems, it's reasonable to think that the person is unemployed. It's also possible that they move, they're no longer in the state. And then it turns out there's a third option, which is that they could be self-employed. And to get the employment, uh, the, the self-employment, you use IRS records. Is that right? That's exactly right. So if you're self-employed, particularly if you're a sole proprietor, then whenever you fill out your taxes, you just add another form that says, yes, I'm self-employed and this is how much money I accepted. And here's how much money, you know, it cost me to run my business. And, you know, that's how you, you file your uh, taxes for your self-employed business. And so, you know, this is kind of a way of getting through the administrative records, a different way of identifying, okay, who is running their own business uh, and who is not. Right. And, and we'll come back and talk about some of the details of those tax forms uh, in, in a bit. But yeah, I agree. Like it is an amazing data lift and uh, and merging process of linking all these different uh, data sets, um, including these IRS tax records, to identify these self-employed people who, like you said, are typically missing from state-level unemployment insurance databases and the different surveys that are collected by foundations and also Department of Labor and things like that. Uh, and so, again, we'll come back to some of those linkages and, and uh, data issues, but after you made those linkages and, and created this new data set, why don't you preview your findings a little bit? Uh, specifically, it seems like self-employment uh, is really common among those who've had criminal justice, uh, among those who've had contact with the criminal justice system. What's the headline result there and, and how big is that difference? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's one of those things we, you know, going into this, we weren't sure, is this going to be high or not high? You know, of course, there's barriers to to formal employment, like we've discussed, but there's also barriers to self-employment. So it, it's really unclear. Um, but whenever we do kind of some of the data linking, what we find is that close to 28% of people with a criminal justice record 
are self-employed or sole proprietors. To compare that to the general population or those without any criminal uh, justice contact, it's 24%. And so this is about a 15% increase in the likelihood of self-employment among those with kind of criminal justice contact. And is that gap larger for certain demographic groups? Yeah, so it's the largest for minorities and specifically minority women. So that's where we see kind of the biggest increase in the likelihood of being self-employed relative to, say, the the same women that don't have the criminal justice record. And so I think that's kind of quite surprising. And, you know, perhaps it, it reflects differences in preferences for self-employment, or it could be reflecting this greater likelihood of being kind of pushed out of the formal labor market. And so, you know, taking up self-employment as a last resort. And I'm sure there's also gender differences in the in the types of occupations that people are sorting into when it comes to self-employment, I guess, or, may, or maybe overall? Yeah. So I, I think both overall, there's a gender sorting, but then among self-employed, there's also, I think it's very likely that, you know, part of this could be, uh, as as I think we'll, we'll talk about later, is the types of kind of businesses that are easier to be self-employed. So we mentioned landscaping, but also maybe perhaps hairdressing. Um, so there are certain things that are maybe easier uh, to be self-employed, whereas, you know, you're not really going to be in manufacturing as a self-employer. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. And so this overrepresentation of folks with criminal backgrounds in self-employment, overall, at first glance, you might say, well, that's, you know, what's the problem with that? We often romanticize entrepreneurs and small business owners in this country. But I think what is fundamentally troubling about your results is that on average, self-employed individuals earn less than a similar counterpart who's working as an employee. Is that more or less true? Yeah. So, you know, we actually have a a pretty nice kind of number on this. So those that are self-employed typically earn 35% less than those that are not self-employed. And that's among people who are self-employed for about 10 or more years. So it's not like, oh, the first year you take a hit, but then eventually you, you make up for it, right? So among people, you know, 10 years in the business. So these are, you know, reasonably successful small business owners, they're still earning 35% less than if they would have just been an employee at a firm. Wow, that's pretty big. It's quite large. And it's not explained by negative selection. So maybe those with lower educational experiences or, you know, you could imagine, I didn't go to college, so I'm going to be self-employed. And so even if you account for these types of differences, you still see this kind of big earnings hit. And, and I should add that, you know, that doesn't even include things that typically come with being employed through an employer, like uh, benefits such as health insurance or retirement savings and so on. Right. Paid vacations. Right. And so if it's not a negative selection, meaning sort of pre-existing differences between the people that, that enter self-employment, why do we think this is? So I think there are kind of two main main theories. So the first could be that there's other non-pecuniary benefits. So what I mean by that are things other than wages, right? So we can measure this wage difference, but what we're not measuring is maybe there's some benefit like uh, job flexibility. Right. Flexible schedule. Exactly. And maybe that's what's kind of accounting for this difference. The other theory is that those that are discriminated in kind of the formal labor market are then pushed into self-employment. And so this could include women and minorities and you know, this argument kind of naturally extends to those with a criminal justice record. Okay. And then sort of uh, parallel to this self-employment wage penalty, 
There's also a penalty associated with a prior conviction that we already talked about, you know, sort of what that looks like overall and why it might happen. Are you able to estimate the wage penalty associated with a prior conviction in your data set? And how does what you find in your study compare with what others have found in other data sets? Yeah, so we do this using the administrative record. So again, we're going to use tax records. So we can focus just on kind of those that are are formally employed. So this is going to be people who get a W-2 from an employer, which many people are probably uh, getting around this time of year. This is uh, January. And so once you get those tax forms, you have the wages and all this information. And so using these kind of tax records, we can see, well, what are people's wages? And then we can also see, do they have a criminal record or not? And so doing this, we see that those with a criminal record earn about 20% less uh, when looking about at those W-2 wages. And that's actually very similar to what the literature finds when using kind of these state UIs or surveys. So this is all kind of uh, very similar. Well, that's always reassuring to uh, reaffirm a finding in a, in a, in a different data set and, and replicate that result. And it, it adds some sort of trust to the, to the data that you're using here, I think. So like we said, a huge contribution of your study was the actual merging and linking of these different novel data sets and then being able to identify some important statistic and correlations in the data. Could you walk us through that process a little bit, starting, I guess, with the criminal records data? That comes from five states. Each of the states are a little bit different. Where exactly did that data come from? How do you work with it? And, and how did it vary across the different states? Yeah, so this is, you know, again, going back to what does criminal justice contact mean, right? And so so lots of different forms. And we really didn't want to focus only on incarceration because there's a lot of other important kind of types of contact that we wanted to look at, specifically, you know, convictions. And so what we've done is collect through CJARS, which is the Criminal Justice Administrative Records System. And this is an organization that's based out of Michigan and is in partnership with the U.S. Census Bureau. And kind of the goal is to collect these records from a bunch of different states. And so currently about 60% of the U.S. population is covered. You know, when we did the study, uh, we had about five states that we were working with, which is, I think, 30% of the population. So they're large states and, and we can kind of focus on there. And that's where we had, you know, already collected records ranging from things like a misdemeanor and felony convictions through incarceration and even parole and probation. Um, And so we really kind of wanted the range of different types of criminal justice contact uh, for the study. And there was a handful of states where we had that. So just to give you kind of highlight some of the differences across states. So, for example, you know, the state with our best coverage is actually Michigan. And there we have misdemeanor and court records, as well as prison, parole and probation. So really kind of a, a broad range of types of criminal justice exposure. But then in, you know, maybe something like Arizona, we have misdemeanor and felony court records, as well as prison records, but no no records on either parole or probation. And so some of the coverage differs across states. Uh, and that's just kind of important to highlight when thinking about, you know, why are numbers higher in some states than others? And it could be because some states are behaving differently, or it could be that we're just not observing the full population due to kind of these differences in records. But there are some similarities across the five states, too, in terms of like incarceration is recorded in all five. Exactly. And so so when doing this, you know, you'll notice basically in all all five states, they all include uh, misdemeanor and felony convictions as well as incarceration. 
And that was because we didn't want them to change too much (laughs) across. So, you know, adding in parole and probation is wonderful, but also, you know, it's not going to be doing some of the heavy lifting, like say incarceration and misdemeanor or felony conviction. So if we observe those others, then we're probably going to get most of the sample, but we do miss some, uh, say parole, for example. Yeah. And then, okay, so that that's the criminal justice side of the data, those five different state systems. And then you're going to merge that to the earnings data, which we said comes from IRS tax forms. I think you mentioned one. Uh, what, what are the main tax forms that a self-employed individual would have to file? And I guess, how many are there? How different are they? And, and what are the key ones that you use in your study? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because, uh, like I said, this is how we're going to identify if you're self-employed is through these tax forms. Um, and so I actually learned a lot more about taxes than I uh, would have otherwise. If you're a household, then you file a 1040. This is just what you file your, your typical income uh, taxes on. And if you're also self-employed, then you'll file a Schedule C if you're a sole proprietor with that 1040. You could also be self-employed, though, say, if you have a farm. Uh, so there's a Schedule F for those who, who are farm owners. And then there's also a Schedule SE, which is for self-employed, reporting self-employed income. And so these are kind of a few different forms. Now, if you're self-employed through a partnership or a limited liability company or an S-corporation, then you start filing other forms unrelated to the 1040. So this is kind of a part of that whole liability is once you move beyond a sole proprietor, independent contractor, you actually start filing forms as separate from your own household income taxes. And so this is both why we don't observe those types of, of small businesses, but it's also not the majority share. Um, so it's okay for us to kind of you know not focus so much on those. Now, among those that file with their actual 1040 form, most people who file a schedule a self-employment tax form are Schedule C filers. And in fact, a lot of uh, farm owners are also Schedule C. So we end up limiting ourselves just to the Schedule C filers because we observe a lot of information about that Schedule C form. So we know uh, the earnings, we know the expenses, we know how much they took in wages, they, we know the total revenue of the business. And we also know the industry of the business. And so kind of focusing on sole proprietors, which is the largest set of small business owners, you know, lets us really get, you know, a lot more detail about what these small business owners look like. Okay. So the, the schedule C is, is the key thing with, with all that information. I I was going to ask about how do you know what industry they're in or the type of work that they're doing? Is that just like a box that you would fill in on the schedule C? Or are you like choosing from a set of IRS-defined sectors or something? Exactly. So think of it as choosing from a set of predefined sectors. So this is specifically called NAICS codes or the North American Industry Classification System. And really, it's just kind of designed in order to, I don't know, have some order to the chaos, right? And so there's these set fields, like are you working in food or hospitality and accommodations or... Uh, manufacturing, construction? Are you in the hospital system? Are you perhaps in the education system? So these are just kind of broad buckets that business owners can classify themselves into. And they go, you know, you can start broad like you're in construction, and then you can get narrower and narrower. So you can be, well, what type of construction and um, really kind of refine these. And so whenever they fill out their form, they can, you know, select which one 
is most appropriate for their business. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting that it that it drills down that that precisely. And as we'll see, you know, knowing what sector or industry someone's working in is, is going to be an important part of your analysis. Um, before we get on to that, though, one last note that or, or thought that came up when, when you were describing this section C, for a self-employed individual, they could take a salary, but they could also maybe like reinvest some of their earnings into their business or something like that. That distinction is made on the section C. I think. Yeah, exactly. And so there's lots of ways. And so, you know, actually thinking about, you know, what are the wages of a self-employed person is super complicated because it is very possible that you, you know, choose not to take earnings or wages. Um, and instead you, you know, reinvest it in the company, like you're saying. So in the schedule C, you'll list, you know, what are your expenses? And, and a part of that are wages to your employees, you know, what wages are you're giving yourself and so on. You also list, what total revenue you brought in. Um, so you can see, you know, there's some amount of total revenue. Some of the expenses are in the form of your, say, lease and other things. Of course, it's not that disaggregated. <laughs> but then one thing that is separate is the wages you paid yourself because you pay income taxes on the wages you pay yourself. So you, you can pay business taxes on the total revenue and, and your operating minus your operating expenses, and then also um, income taxes. And so that's why they're actually separated out. And many times you actually see that uh, Schedule C filers aren't taking wages necessarily. Got it. Yeah. And so does the, but everything has to add up at the end. Exactly. Like wages and expenditures have to add up to revenue. Exactly. And whatever, you know, Say you have some total revenue being, um, you know, $100 and say your expenses are 80, then you get taxed on the the other 20, uh, which would be, you know, your profit. Or, you know, um, maybe you're breaking even and that's fine too. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, the, the, this is very interesting, but I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of, of the, the tax code and the, and the tax form. <laughs> I do want to come back to, though, what seems to me like a very daunting task of somehow linking these these IRS Section C tax forms to the criminal record data from these five states. How do you go about that linkage process, both from a technical point of view, but also from a privacy and data security point of view? Yeah, so there are lots of weeds that we could go into here, but I'll try to kind of streamline the main thoughts. And so a lot of this is possible because of the partnership with the U.S. Census Bureau. And so they have these federal statistic data research centers or research data centers. And the purpose of these is is to keep this highly sensitive data that they collect and then be able to you know provide it to researchers without breaking any confidential uh, confidentiality or privacy concerns. So the nice thing, kind of what they do is, you know, all the data coming in has some amount of personal identification information. And so think first name, last name, date of birth, maybe your the social security number, uh, and so forth. And what the Census Bureau does is it kind of assigns a, a fake number, a unique number to that person known as a PIC. So this is a personal identification key. So it acts as an SSN, other than it has no meaning other than to the U.S. Census Bureau. And so this is like a scrambled number. It's a scrambled number. Exactly. And the benefit of this is that it allows you to link person to person. So Brittany Street files her taxes. Brittany Street might show up in 
uh, the criminal justice system as well. And I see the same, maybe, you know, her number or my number is 103 or 10395, you know, whatever my number is, but I can link those two people. And so it's not important that this person is Brittany Street, but more so important that what is this person who has what type of criminal justice record and then what are their employment outcomes? And so this type of grambled <laughs> SSN is what allows us to then uh, connect these individuals at the person level. Uh, and so again, all this is done within the Census Bureau. And because of these, you know, lots of, of privacy and safety things, they first give a, a fake SSN or a PIC uh, that allows the linking, but then they also make sure that everything that is disclosed, so, you know, these kind of research data centers are obviously highly secure, and you're not allowed to bring any results out without passing through a disclosure review board. And so what they're doing is making sure that you're just bringing out these aggregate statistics and that there's no room or possibility that you could identify anyone from whatever material you're bringing out of the secure center. And so that's really kind of the, the crux is, you know, with amazing data, you're allowed to do really amazing research, but it also comes with this, you know, importance of, of maintaining privacy and security. Right. I appreciate the effort that that goes into this, and also, you know, want to want to make sure uh, for our listeners to understand that. I guess two things: like, a, you never actually have this data like on your laptop. This is all in a very secure, almost like a bunker sort of, uh, you know, repository, and you never actually touch that raw data. It it stays in that that secure location, and then even when you're working with it you don't actually see social security numbers. You see those uh, scrambled sort of proxy numbers, um, like you said. So, and it's great that the Census Bureau and, and other government departments make research uh, or make data like this available to researchers to, to do this type of important work. Okay, so you have this very rich data set that links the tax records and the criminal records and then the first statistic you report is to look at basically how many of the 1040 form filers, which is basically everybody who's earning an income is, is filing a 1040 form to the IRS, how many of them also filed a Schedule C, which is unique to these self-employed folks? Is that right? Yep, that's exactly right. And so that's where we come up with this number of you know, 20, 28% of people with a record are self-employed. So, you know, if you have a record, how many people are self-employed compared to, you know, everyone who's in the filing universe? And then the same thing for if you don't have a record, it's it's only 24%. Um, and so again, these are somewhat high. It's higher actually than I expected even in the baseline population. But this is in part because, you know, again, there's not, um, you know, lots of barriers uh, to filing these forms uh, or, or to being self-employed. Um, and so, you know, some of these are, I think, more substantial businesses than others, uh, which is kind of what, why all the extra information on the Schedule C is so important. Yeah. And I don't know if we said this before, but uh, I believe that it's not mutually exclusive whether you're self-employed or not, right? You could, you could be an employee with a full-time job that then mows lawns every now and then on the side, and then you would you would file a Schedule C, even though you also have a non-self-employed salary. Yep, that's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. And so you can be, you know, have the W-2 when you file, and we would observe that. And then we'd also see if, in addition to that, uh, you file the Schedule C. And we could even see, you know, maybe what share of your earnings come from each. And did you do much with that? Yeah, we did. Um, And so, again, because, you know, it's one thing just to have kind of this headline number of kind of this extensive margin, which is are you self-employed or not in any form, which is that 28 versus 24. But it's also then gets at, well, are these more substantial businesses? Uh, And that's where we look at, you know, well, what share of your income comes from the Schedule C? And again, those that are, you know, involved in the criminal justice system are much more likely to have a larger share of their income come from the Schedule C than their W-2. They're also more likely to have uh, larger businesses, right? So you kind of two interpretations of this is that those that are involved in the criminal justice system are more successful entrepreneurs, and that's one interpretation. But I think maybe the more likely interpretation is that those that are uh, self-employed and with a criminal justice record really are relying on this as a stream of income relative to, you know, among the 24% of the general population that also files a form, you know, maybe this is more so just a, a side business and not really their main reliance for self economic self-sufficiency. And then we mentioned that, that the gaps are a little bit bigger for racial minority groups, particularly women, I think. Can we talk a little bit more about the idea that those groups, particularly women and people of color, are subject to well-documented discrimination in the formal labor market that has nothing to do with having a criminal history, just racial discrimination in the hiring process, say. And I think that the evidence on that is, is pretty well established. But I'm curious, sort of how do you think about that sort of interacting with discrimination against those with the criminal history? Yeah, so I, I think it just somewhat compounds it and magnifies. So, you know, you can almost think of, you know, someone hiring and, you know, who's their next eligible person. And so, you know, maybe you're going to hire the white workers first. Maybe, you know, then then you'll hire the white women next. And then you hire and you kind of go down this pecking order. Um, you know, then maybe you hire the black men and then black women. And then you get down and you say, okay, well, now I, I've run out of, of people and now I need to hire people with criminal histories and they're going to be the ones at the bottom of that kind of ladder. And so I think, I think of it as just, you know, magnifying these types of, um, you know, already existing discriminations in in the formal labor market. And likely the reason for why a self-employment is either the only viable option or the most preferred option uh, for these individuals, despite the the potential earnings penalty of being (laughs) self-employed. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, there's also very large racial disparities in contact with the criminal justice system, and that just lays a whole nother layer of magnification on these uh, ultimate labor market uh, disparities. Exactly. So, you know, of course, men are, are the majority of people that interact with the, the criminal justice system. Uh, women also, though, ha- do have, you know, a, a high degree of contact and more so among minority uh, than white women. And so, again, this is kind of, uh, you know, they're very much so overrepresented when you think about people that are currently incarcerated relative to, you know, the share of the total population. And this is also true at the conviction stage and the charging stage and the arresting stage, and it goes all the way down. So this is just kind of compounded across the criminal justice system. Uh, and is, is why anytime you, st- you study the criminal justice system, it's just so important 
um, to look at these kind of differences by race, but also the intersectionality of race and gender. Right. And then another dimension of intersectionality or, or heterogeneity maybe is that you do use that information about industry from the section C to look at, well, where are these self-employed people working? What type of work, what type of jobs uh, are they engaging in? And it struck me that there's some real differences here. And sometimes, I guess for the most part, they kind of align with some of the stereotypes that exist in society about the types of jobs that somebody with a criminal record is more likely to uh, work in. But I'm curious, uh, was there anything that surprised you there? And what were the main differences uh, across industries and, and occupation? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's interesting. We've seen kind of what industries are most uh, receptive, I guess, to employing people with a criminal record. And like you said, these are kind of ones that we've already you know, somewhat known, um, which is, say, construction and waste management, warehousing, uh, and manufacturing. And so those are really large industries among you know, people that are, are employer-employed, uh, for lack of a better term. Among the people that are Schedule C filers, there's a lot of things that make sense. So they're more likely to be in construction, which, which again, lines up with, with those if, that are uh, employer-employed, um, and waste management. They're not likely to be in manufacturing, which is, of course, maybe not surprising. So even though they're very likely to be employed there, uh, they're not likely to be self-employed in manufacturing. But I think the most interesting one is other services. And so this kind of is the next code, the bucket that groups in a bunch of different service type um, industries. And so this is one that we kind of drilled into kind of the finer detail of what does other services mean? Um, because this is kind of one that we didn't previously know. So you know, people that are employer employed are not actually likely, uh, very likely to be in other services. It's not one of kind of the main drivers, um, but it is for the self-employed. And so when drilling down, we see a lot of personal care services, automotive repair, personal and household goods, repair and maintenance, uh, and things like that. And so, you know, personal care services, this, this could be, um, you know, uh, nail and hair salons, barber shops, and so forth. Um, and so this is kind of one that we don't typically see, you know, people working for an employer, but but really high prevalency of, of self-employment. And some of these different industries require different credentials or, or different skills. Uh, and in that sense, I, I also wondered, how does education interact with this, uh, knowing that I guess education predicts involvement with the criminal justice system and different levels of schooling are, are typical or required in some of these different industries. Um, does education or disparities in education between those with and without a criminal record uh, help to explain any of the differences that you see? Yeah, so that's a really great question and one that we didn't really dig into a ton in this paper, in part because the administrative education records are actually not as um, don't have as good of coverage. Um, and so, you know, at times we do see educational attainment in say the American community survey. And so when we, we look at differences in self-employment, we can control for things like education. So, you know, even among people with the same high school uh, level of education or uh, say college education and so forth, we still see self-employment, uh, you know, a, a higher degree of self-employment e even after conditioning. 
so we do think about education in that exercise. But when thinking about industry, that's actually not something that that we did. I think you're right that there is some degree of, um, you know, for example, when looking at the those that are in the criminal justice system and those that are not in the criminal justice system, you see a much higher degree of of employment in something like um, the healthcare uh, industry. And so, you know, this is could definitely reflect a difference in education. It could also very well likely reflect differences in occupational um, restrictions or licensing. So even to get the license to begin with, you're not allowed to have a criminal justice record. And so I, I definitely think some of these things compound each other um, in terms of what, what professions you're able to go into um, to begin with, which is why we like to highlight you know, say among the people that are employer employed, what's the distribution of jobs you're working in? Um, so, you know, where do people with criminal justice records enter? And just compare kind of that to the ske- the self-employed or Schedule C filers. Got it. Some of the tax forms just don't have education period on it. Exactly. It kind of, uh, along somewhat similar lines, the other predictor of self-employment that I would imagine matters alongside education is just your prior work experience. And we know that there's returns to experience in a lot of professions, you know, in terms of uh, responsibilities increasing, effectiveness increasing, salaries increasing, you know, with experience in the field. How does that factor into your study? And, And what, if anything, are you able to observe about an individual's employment history maybe prior to being incarcerated or prying to prior to being self-employed um are you able to look at that sort of uh chain of events at all yeah exactly i think that's that's super interesting and so so one thing that we can do is because we observe both w2s which is if if you're employed through through an employer and schedule c's then we can see you know prior to that first schedule c filing what industry was your W-2 coming from, right? And so this is kind of a way of getting at that experience or familiarity with the industry. And one thing that really stands out is that those with criminal justice involvement, once they're self-employed, they're much more likely to already have had experience in that industry through a formal employer. And so there is some degree of returns to this uh, experience in in the sense that they're able to then be self-employed. What's interesting is that, you know, they're more likely to have this experience than people without the criminal histories. And so I think this could be, you know, somewhat indicative of, you know, access to capital or the ability to enter the the industry without any experience if you don't have a record, right? So in some sense, you know, you're able to enter because of of other privileges um, that you may have and, and you don't need the experience maybe. The other really interesting thing is that for other services, so I mentioned this is kind of one of the things that I think is new and not something we previously really thought about uh, when thinking about the main sectors that those with criminal histories are employed in, is that you're actually not likely uh, to already have experience in other services before entering. Um, And so you're most likely to come from waste management or manufacturing or accommodation and food services, all of which are... Um, you know, it's it's kind of hard to go into manufacturing as a self-employer. It's hard to go into food services or open a restaurant um, 
you know, there's there's a lot more barriers to self-employment in those industries. And so you see that, you know, those that go into food services, or I'm sorry, those that go into other services actually have kind of different histories, different employment histories, um, and that they kind of get channeled into this, you know, lowest barrier form of self-employment, which you could think of as these other personal services. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And um, so you've documented all these patterns and we see all of these uh, different relationships and, and some of them interact with other disparities or other sources of discrimination and so on. Um, and so I wanted to sort of take a step back and, and think about, uh, at a broad level about the policy implication and uh, the policy implications of all of this. And at, at a very fundamental level, we already talked a little bit about supporting re-entry and, and supporting people as they try to re-enter the labor market, find a stable job and a stable income. Uh, we know that's important uh, for individuals and their families, uh, as, as well as society as a whole in some sense. Uh, so what specific advice or implications do you think your work provides to policymakers? Uh, you know, and this could be, well, I guess it might be a little bit different at the federal level, state level, local level. Um, uh, what is, what are the main implications and, and pieces of advice that, that you'd have for those folks at different levels? Yeah. So I think of kind of two pieces of, of advice and, and the first is actually extremely simple and practical. Um, and that's that, you know, we see the higher rates of, of self-employment among people with criminal justice involvement across a range of different types of, of criminal justice involvement. It's highest for those with a felony conviction because that's kind of the most serious form um, that, you know, employers might not want to hire. And so they're, they're the ones that are most likely to, to take up self-employment. You actually see the lowest amount of self-employment uh, among those that are recently released from prison. Um, and and I think the the reason this is, and this is kind of a stylized fact in the literature, is that upon release, you actually are supposed to secure formal employment as a part of your parole conditions. And you meet with your parole officer and, and you describe this. And, you know, I think given the barriers to, to formal employment, you know, the fact you see this kind of spike post-prison release and then kind of it goes away, I think, again, reflecting this this inability to be employed in, in the formal uh, labor market. And so one really simple thing would be, you know, to allow uh, self-employment to kind of satisfy the, the terms of parole. Um, and so, you know, it might be counterproductive to, to push people into formal employment where maybe they have to take a lower paying job or this or that when they could have been more successful uh, self-employed. The other, and that's just kind of a, a technical solution. The other is that, you know, reentry programs, they focus a lot on uh, job training and things like interview skills and, and lots of things that help you uh, try to secure a job in the formal labor market or the, you know, through an employer. And perhaps those, you know, uh, programs could be altered to instead teach things like how to fill out the proper tax forms and how to set up a small business. And perhaps those types of programs actually might be more successful. You know, we don't we don't have evidence of that yet, but it's very possible that, you know, maybe we're just focusing on the wrong types of skills. Uh, and it, given that this is is a viable policy path, 
maybe that's more so yeah. what we should be focusing on. No, I think that's a great point because it, it, it does seem like a lot of the, the job training style reentry programs are actually making the wrong assumption, which is that these people are, are going to go and be someone else's employee. And so they need skills to like on the, on the shop floor type of skills, but what that comes at the expense of kind of managerial and administrative skills, which are critically important if you're running your own business. Um, so I think, I, I think that's a, uh, an important point and, and something that seems like it's overlooked in a lot of existing reentry programs. So, so that's the, the policy implications on the, on the reentry and job training side. One last thing I wanted to quickly uh, discuss with you was uh, another part of your paper looks at the PPP program that was part of the CARES Act. The PPP was the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, this was passed in 2020 in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and the CARES Act was this big federal response, the coronavirus aid, relief, and economic security package. Um, this is a fundamentally different type of policy in that this policy is designed to support small businesses, uh, right? So what exactly was the PPP doing and, and how big was it? Yeah, so the payroll protection program was was passed, as you, as you mentioned, in, in response to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so the goal was, you know, a lot of businesses are, are needing to uh, close and, and, you know, aren't able to maybe stay afloat. And so we, you know, don't want them to close permanently. So let's give them some, you know, really critical aid to kind of help them weather the storm. Um, and so that was, you know, again, like you said, targeted just to small businesses. Um, and initially they, you know, Congress had allocated you know, about $350 billion which quickly ran out. So there's a lot of demand for this program. They allocated, you know, another, um, you know, over 300 billion, uh, two more in two separate um, kind of additions to the program uh, throughout kind of uh, the pandemic. So this was really a, a very large program and, you know, with this idea of aiding specifically those that are, are self-employed. You know, a program like this, given what we've already learned from your study about folks with a criminal background of some sort being overrepresented in self-employment at first you would think oh well this is good it's gonna it's gonna help those people because it is supporting small businesses and and, and those people are overrepresented amongst small business owners uh, but there's a catch right and and the catch is similar to another issue we already talked about which is that certain public programs are, unavailable to people with a criminal background. And the PPP loan program was was no different um, in the sense that there were specific eligibility rules about the recipient's uh, criminal history. Um, what exactly was the eligibility rule? Uh, and, and was it ever relaxed sort of as as the PPP program evolved? Yeah. So, so initially, so Congress didn't actually state that there needed to be a, a criminal qualification, but uh, left it to the Small Business Administration to kind of implement the program. And and what the Small Business Administration was worried about is, you know, like 
in any program that you you administer, you're, you know, of course, worried about fraud. Uh, and so they implemented kind of these blanket criminal uh, history restrictions. Uh, so if you had, uh, for example, um, were currently in prison on parole or on probation, if you had a pending charge against you, so, you know, you could have just been charged with, say, a drug possession, and that would be a pending charge. Um, or if you had uh, been convicted of a felony within the past five years, uh, so any felony uh, over a five-year time span. And of course, this is the group that is most likely to be self-employed. Um, so all of these uh, kind of disqualify these kind of uh, criteria made you disqualified uh, for PPP funding. And what's even kind of added on top of that is I think there's some sort of ambiguity where people weren't sure. You know, they might have had an unresolved case and so they, they figured, you know, they weren't eligible for funding. And of course, you don't want to apply if you're not eligible for fear that... Right. The application is somewhat onerous. Yeah. Well, not only that the application is onerous, but if you file and you're not eligible and you state that you are, then then you could actually be uh, penalized. Uh, and and be uh, okay. future uh, access to funding. So I think there's also some weariness that you know if you thought you might be ineligible, you also didn't want to apply. Yeah. So there's kind of a, a double whammy happening here in terms of people n- not applying, but also maybe some people applied and and actually got themselves in trouble by applying. Uh, I hadn't thought about about the latter, but that actually um, makes sense, and you know, might be viewed as fraud or something like that. I guess. Um, so, in your calculations, you do know. Well, you don't need your calculations data for this, but but broadly, we can look at the PPP loan eligibility rules and get a sense of uh, what types of small businesses are eligible for a PPP loan, and then you can go back and look at your data and see, okay. How many people were either denied or just didn't apply, probably, due to the criminal record restriction? Exactly. So we start with the initial criminal restriction. So one thing I didn't mention was is these were rolled back in part because of some of our initial findings that this could be harmful for, for a set of, of small businesses. And so, you know, they were in place for, you know, a few months, particularly the first wave of funding, which was, you know, perhaps the most critical. Um, and then, you know, for, for subsequent fundings, they rolled them back and tailored them much more specifically to what they were worried about. So, you know, say if you had a felony conviction related to fraud or embezzlement, uh, you know, so they really kind of narrowed in scope to, to address more pointedly what they were worried about. But using kind of those initial restrictions, which is, you know, what, what were in place and what many small businesses thought were uh, going to be the eligibility criteria moving forward, we can estimate that about 3% of all small businesses wouldn't have been eligible. So we don't know whether they applied or got rejected, but we do know that, you know, based off of their criminal histories, that 3% of the, the current small business owners wouldn't have been eligible. And this isn't, you know, a, a super large share. You know, 3% isn't necessarily anything massive. But when thinking about 3% of all small businesses, this is actually a pretty sizable amount. Right? So if you, you know, say, well, 3% of all current small businesses are Schedule C filers, um, if you want to kind of abstract away to the national level, then this is you know, basically over a million uh, small businesses. Right. Yeah. In absolute terms, it's, it's a lot of people are affected. And the consequence of that is that due to the 
shutdowns during COVID and also just doing due to sort of changes in what customers wanted and, and changes in consumption patterns and things like that. A lot of those small businesses um, may have failed without the lifeline that the PPP loan provided. Do we have any estimate of, of how successful the PPP loans were in uh, in helping small businesses stay afloat during that first couple years of the pandemic? Yeah, so we, we do have some pretty early estimates. You know, one that shows that, you know, access to PPP increased survival by potentially 14 to 30 percentage points. So that's really a, a pretty large increase in the likelihood of being able to survive. The other large or the other kind of piece of evidence we have is that, you know, even by March of 2020, about 2% of small businesses had closed. And so that's pretty surprising considering that that was so early in the pandemic. Um, and so I think that, you know, even even before um, in, any PPP funding was, was allowed, some businesses chose to close because they didn't think that they could, you know, even one month being closed was going to be too much for their business. And so I think that, you know, not only was the funding very critical, but the delay in funding could have been really important. Yeah. And just like there's uh, racial discrimination and self uh, in employment practices, there also um, were probably racial disparities in PPP loan exclusion, uh, maybe for reasons uh, over and above the criminal background restriction. Um, and, and I think the, the result of, of all of this is that uh, minority-owned businesses were failing at higher rates during the COVID pandemic, uh, all else equal. Do you think that, that this contributes to that pattern at all? And, and if you happen to know, like, do you have a sense of, of how big this disparity was in terms of minority-owned small businesses uh, having more difficulties? Yeah. So, you know, for example, we can see, you know, among the people who were self-employed or had a Schedule C, you know, what share of them had, say, these ineligible conditions. And so, you know, I mentioned that 3% number overall, but of course that's masking really important heterogeneity. Uh, And so it's 3% overall for all small businesses, but among, say, you know, um, businesses where the owner was a, a black man, it's 9%, so triple the overall rate. And so it's it's really much higher. Um, for example, for black women, it's close to 6%, uh, so, you know, double. Um, and so I, I think it's really, you know, important to think about, you know, even though it's 3%, that translates to a lot of businesses. Well, you know, 9% of all black business owners uh, black male business owners, six percent of all black female business owners, and again, you know, this is going to then contribute to these kind of differential shutdowns, right? If you aren't a- eligible for this really critical funding, and it's going to lead to this kind of lack of diversity in in our small business owners uh, in in various communities, and so I think that you know, again, we don't measure exactly if you shut down. It's something that as the tax data comes out, we could actually see perhaps survival. Um, and so that's something that's really interesting. But again, you know, we didn't want to delay these findings for waiting for these tax records, especially because, uh, you know, there were kind of these uh, granted delays in tax filing due to the pandemic. And so there's kind of a trade-off there. But it is possible to think that, 
you know, I think it's very reasonable to think that some of these kind of disqualifications led to those differential shutdowns. And then, of course, the you know, this also contributes to the intergenerational persistence and transmission of inequality and things like that. Um, so there, there are long-lasting consequences uh, of all of this. You mentioned, you know, trying to get these early results out. Do you and your colleagues have more plans for the future to, to continue studying these types of questions? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this, as you mentioned, this data linkage is, is quite substantial. And so, you know, a lot of this was now that the data is linked together and, and we can measure these types of things, you know, I think it, it does make a lot of sense to do a follow-up to say, you know, which ones did survive and, and what role did this play in in actual business closures. It, it also makes sense to, to you know, think it unrelated to, say, PPP and COVID specifically, but just broadly self-employment and, you know, actually measure, you know, kind of this this chain reaction of who's self-employed before their first felony conviction and how many are self-employed after and kind of this, you know, direct evidence of, of maybe a pushing into self-employment. Um, and, you know, again, some of these things are were beyond the scope of just this one paper, but I think, you know, first, even knowing that self-employment is important among this population because it's not really clear given there are barriers to self-employment as well. Um, and so, you know, knowledge of, of what you need to do and, and perhaps uh, startup costs and so forth. And so I think, you know, this idea of it being important and now maybe we should do more work related to this and, and, and other scholars as well. I think, yeah, I'd be very excited to, to see that. We will be excited to, to see, you know, what that future work looks like. I think this study provides some really, you know, basic facts and, and basic statistics that um, are, are probably going to form the basis of, of a lot of uh, research and policy analysis and, and policy design moving forward, uh, both by your team and, and others, for sure. Uh, one last thing about the PPP programs I, I wanted to, you know, get your thoughts about is, um, you know, moving forward, what advice or, or what insights do you have for uh, PPP type programs that might include loans or other sorts of training or support that would provide more equitable support to uh, self-employed individuals and small business owners? Uh, you know, equitable referring to um, not just different demographic backgrounds, but also different uh, criminal. Uh, criminal histories too. Are there any like, you know, main lessons or ideas that you have for for how this might have been improved uh, for the next time? Yeah, and I I think there's two that I that immediately come to mind. Although I'm sure there are more, uh, and and hopefully we'll continue this conversation. You know, broadly speaking, uh, among policymakers and, and researchers. But you know, the first I think of is is just a classic. You know, benefits versus cost. You know, weighing. There is some benefit of of making sure that these dollars aren't used for fraudulent purposes. Um, but in trying to kind of accomplish that goal, there was this very big blanket ban on anyone who had a criminal history. And I, I think it's reasonable to think that uh, a lot of those criminal histories are not related to, to fraudulent activity at all. <laughs> and so I, I think it was, you know, uh, kind of there was some benefit of, of having a ban uh, but it wasn't weighed against what the cost of that ban would be. And so it kind of overextended 
beyond what it needed to be. And you did see this kind of rolling back in in the subsequent months of the payroll protection program and that they kind of readjusted to say, okay, let's actually focus on on what we are concerned about. And so I think that's kind of the first step is that these kind of blanket approaches typically aren't uh, beneficial uh, in lots of policies. And I think this is just one example where that approach led to you know, significant consequences um, unnecessarily. The other would be, I think, just really clear guidelines. And I know, you know, these programs sometimes are, you know, they were done in a rush and maybe under not ideal circumstances. Um, But some of these guidelines, you know, for example, one was not having a pending charge, and it's unclear exactly what that means. Um, Is it misdemeanor? Is it felony? And kind of the variation in what different loan offices considered or, you know, even access to help and, and you know, um, other resources of, oh, yeah, this is okay and this isn't is different across people with, with various backgrounds. And so I think, you know, making the guidelines clearer would help. One thing that, that we do see oftentimes is actually this kind of um, moral character uh, when it comes to these loan applications. So SBA does have kind of a moral character kind of clause. And I think that vagueness is is really detrimental for those with records because it's very easy to say, oh, you know, this falls into uh, the moral character clause. And and I don't know that that, um, you know, if you're worried about whether or not their likelihood to repay uh, is above a certain threshold, I, I, I think this vagueness of her moral character um, and deservability uh, for, say, loans or resources is uh, kind of a trap that people with criminal histories often, you know, fall into and then get um, excluded uh, unnecessarily. And kind of like we're saying, then if they don't have access to, you know, economic self-sufficiency, you know, kind of the the last option then is, is perhaps um, illegal employment. No, I think that's right. And, and, and being clear and uh, maybe even sort of actively helping people uh, uh, apply for these types of, uh, you know, emergency loans or, or, uh, economic circumstance related, uh, supports and, and loan programs, um, would probably make sense. Um, and so, yeah, I think we've, we've talked about several uh, important policy implications and, and ideas for improving both, uh, PPP type small business support programs, as well as reentry programs. And um, yeah, it's been great and, uh, and a fascinating conversation. Uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, again, it's been really nice chatting with you today about your study. Um, I just wanted to leave it on, you know, is there one last uh, point or, or maybe an idea that we didn't quite get to that you'd like to leave our listeners? Yeah, I think the conversation has been really thorough and, and I've enjoyed it a lot. So I guess I'll just kind of leave the conversation on Uh, kind of a summary note, which is just, you know, how important it is to add self-employment to this discussion, both among policymakers and researchers. So, you know, just because it's hard to measure something (laughs) doesn't mean that it's not happening and and that it's not something, um, you know, worth discussing. And and so thankfully now we have some measures on it. and, And so I think that will make the discussion a lot easier. But, you know, given Again, it wasn't exactly clear the role it's play, it, it could play for those with criminal histories. But now that we we know it's clearly an important role, I think it's just important to uh, make sure that, that that stays in the conversation when thinking about, like you said, changing reentry programs or changing different policies about 
access to loans that help this this group and and so forth. And so this podcast was one uh, wonderful piece to add to that conversation. And I look forward to many more. Yeah. Well said, and, and again, fully agree that uh, it, you know this type of uh, work is just so important for for shining a light on some issues and facts that we might not be aware of, even if we you know might suspect them. Um, you've really given some uh, tangible evidence that I think policymakers can work with. So, thanks again uh, for joining us. Our guest today has been Dr. Brittany Street, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri. So, thanks, and we look forward to seeing what you do next. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.